This episode of Consumer VC is brought to you by Ferret. Okay, so let's say you're going to invest in a business or you're considering investment from someone else. How do you actually know if they're legit? Sometimes deals move so fast that it's tough to get that confidence fast. Luckily, there's Ferret, the first relationship intelligence tool for savvy investors and CEOs who need to know who they can trust. Running a quick search on Ferret can give you information like past lawsuits, bankruptcy, fraud allegations, new coverage, and also can be used to verify past successes that they claim. A new relationship is always exciting, but that also means trust is important from the start. To get in front of the line and join Ferret's exclusive early beta where you can be part of the first thousand that have an early look and help influence the product, head over to ferret.ai and use the promo code CONSUMERVC. This episode is also presented by Gorgeous, the number one help desk for Shopify, Magento, and big commerce stores, and can turn your customer support into a private center. We're going to hear from Alex from Princess Polly to learn more. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. Our demographic is Gen Z, and this is the I expect a response now. I call them the now customer. Our CX teams engage across every single channel. It is very important that we meet our customers where they are, and Gorgeous allows us the opportunity to be efficient with all of these channels located in one place. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Stay tuned after the episode where I chat with Rowan from the Gorgeous team, where he shares three tips to help manage your customer support center during the holidays. Link in show notes to sign up for Gorgeous and to get two months free. Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Susan Line, for the introduction to our guest today, Andy Dunn. Andy is the founder of Bonobos. Bonobos was one of the first digitally native brands to ever exist. They eventually sold to Walmart for over 300 million. In this episode, Andy shares the founding journey of Bonobos, how he thinks about the current state of digitally native brands, and a clue about what he's up to next. Without further ado, here's Andy. Andy, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Really good. Really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, I really appreciate you uh, you taking the time. I want to start from the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to entrepreneurship? I think it was just not wanting to work for someone else. I can remember having a job where I felt like there was a really cool opportunity to do to make an investment. And I remember sitting down with a couple of the people on the side of the company that we were going to be buying and feeling like if I could just get my boss out of the way here, I think I could get this done. But, you know, in a larger firm or enterprise, you've got to defer to the hierarchy and ultimately you don't get to make the decision. And so I 
I started to think about sports and I was like, you know, it's the wrong analogy probably, but when you think about LeBron James, right. Or Simone Biles, no one's like, you know what? You're too young. You got to wait your turn, right? Like we're going to lose a bunch of games for the next five years until you're ready. And so I like the idea that when it comes to entrepreneurship, you can just go and, you know, maybe nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of hundred, you're going to screw it up, but at least it's on you. And at least you have a shot at winning without having to wait in line. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really great point. There is no seniority or, you know, hierarchy when it comes to um, entrepreneurship that you can just go. And of course there's no age restriction or anything like that. I know you started uh, Bonobos at Stanford. How did you meet Brian and how did you settle on pants for your idea? We met at a bachelor party in Austin, Texas. I had a friend who had gone to Stanford uh, Business School, GSB, a couple of years before. I knew him and I said, hey, you know, going to Stanford, do you know, do you know anyone? And he's like, you got to meet Spaley. And so Brian Spaley and I met up in Austin. It was a friend of mine from college, uh, actually from growing up, his bachelor party. And we just hit it off. He just was so kinetic, charismatic, funny devastatingly honest um, sense of humor, which I love. And, you know, where there's a lot of cultures out there where you actually don't tell the truth. Like, it's weird. Uh, I just moved back from New York to the Midwest and it's like, okay, let's get to the truth and spare ourselves the niceties. Spaley, even though he's from the Midwest, grew up in Michigan, was one of those people where it just clicked right away because he was so honest, right? Enables you to build a relationship more quickly. And so when we got to Stanford, he actually had a view that men's pants didn't fit and was working on this project literally for two years to do customer research and buy fabric and found a cut and sew shop. And I was watching the whole thing thinking, it's so inspiring that he's doing this. And this is such an unlikely thing, you know, to work. And then it starts working and he's selling pants out of the backs of, uh, you know, back of his trunk and Trader Joe's bags. So it's one of those things that you talk about with entrepreneurship where you can tell something's going to work when you're getting that kind of customer feedback and you're actually seeing revenue hit the books. And I think Brian was intrepid and got that kernel going. And that was when I jumped in and said, hey, let me help you build this. That's amazing. What was some of that customer feedback? I mean, of course, there's so many different pants companies out there. What was, I mean, yeah, just love to kind of hear like what were like some of like the early feedback of, of like the product and maybe how that helped shape with like other iterations. I remember Brian talking about it this way. The research from the guys that he talked to was we don't like wearing pants because they don't fit that well. So we just wear jeans whenever we can. And I don't know if you remember this era uh, where the formal outfit was jeans and a blazer. <laughs> like guys were just defaulting to denim whenever they could. Um, like even when you'd go out at night, you were like jeans and a blazer, maybe a t-shirt, a button down. And I think what happened was in the nineties, the premium denim industry exploded. You had seven, four mankind. Some brands have gone by the side, Rotten Republic, Ernest Zone, AG, which is still doing well. And the men's pants fit like khakis, wool pants that you'd wear to work, pants that pair with a suit, just didn't keep up with what was happening in five pocket. Five pocket being the the denim fit where you've got that actual extra coin pocket. 
and denim was adding stretch. And so there were all kinds of ways where it was becoming a lot more comfortable and men's pants was lagging that. So that was Brian's first insight was guys don't like wearing pants. So they wear jeans whenever they can, unless they have to. That was number one. And number two, guys don't like shopping for pants, right? So, you know, going in and trying to figure out what does fit is a pain in the neck. And those were Brian's insights. And then what he figured out was that there was a way to make a pant that had a curved waistband so that if it fit around your thighs, it also fit in the waist uh, versus just the typical straight fit. And growing up for him playing soccer and hockey, it, it just made more sense for that athletic build. And it turns out a lot of our friends at Stanford had the same problem. And so he started selling pants to our friends and they were buying it. And it was like, all right, well, first, this is the better fit. And then second, given that we're selling direct, maybe we can keep that rolling. And that was when we when we developed the idea to, to build the brand on the Internet, which uh, really didn't have a precedent a purely digital direct consumer brand in 2007, there was no Warby, there was no Harry's, there was, you know, none of these brands existed. So we got to be the idiots to try to like blaze the trail on that. And we, we definitely had our, our share of mistakes along the way. Digitally native 1.0. That's amazing. We talk a lot about on this show about at the early stage, you have to do things that don't scale. And of course, selling out of the, the trunk of your car, you know, things that scale. How did you expand to selling to people maybe outside of your, your group? Was that online? Or were you also doing kind of trunk shows for people that were selling out of your trunk to people that you, you didn't know, for example? How did you find those people? And at what point did you actually say, okay, we need to actually start doing activities or putting systems in check that actually do scale? Yeah, there, I love that concept of doing unscalable things in the early days. I think Bill Gurley articulates it really well in a conversation uh, with Patrick O'Shaughnessy on Invest Like the Best. And I remember listening to that conversation thinking, whoa, whoa, that's exactly what we did. It didn't really make sense at the time, but we were just selling pants to as many people as we could. I can remember going to a friend's wedding in LA and I just would, I had a duffel bag of pants that I would take out like to the, the brunch on Sunday after the wedding. I just would roll around with a duffel bag of pants. I, and in retrospect, that was probably exceptionally rude to be like hawking pants at someone's wedding brunch. But people thought it was funny. He told me years later, people still called me the pants guy from that, like just traveling around selling pants. And I think the combination of in-person selling, doing these little pants parties, trunk shows, that got us a lot of word of mouth early when you combine it with the fact that I think it was a quality product. And we were known for having great customer service being really fast, which is part of the, we all now know, the benefit of the direct model is you can actually create a higher empathy, higher energy experience when you get to interact directly with customers. At that time, mostly over email now, of course, there's chat and a host of ways to connect. And that got a little bit of word of mouth going where I would say we then went to second degree connections. So when we decided to move to New York, I became a CEO, moved the business to New York. There was just this much bigger pool of guys who I think liked what we were doing with the brand. And so I started getting emails from different people um, hey, can I try on the pants? And, you know, we built the e-commerce site. I think that was the first phase. And I like to tell founders now, you should be able to get your business to a million revenue run rate just on your own personal selling, right? Like you should be able to get to call it 30,000, 40,000 within six months, you know, per month. And then ideally, you know, 100,000 within a year just by 
the word mouth that comes from in-person selling. And then at some point you just start thinking about how you scale from there. And, you know, for us that, that moved to hiring a PR firm and amplifying the story of what we're doing. And then as we extended the reach there, a company, a little company out of Palo Alto or, uh, was introducing their advertising platform, which was Facebook. And that was 2008. And we were one of the first 50 advertisers on Facebook. Uh, and as we all know, there was definitely an era where that was an economical channel to scale before by virtue of the company's success, it over time, depending on your business model, you know, got more expensive. Yeah, no, those are all like, I mean, that's just amazing to also be one of the first brands that is able to, uh, to sell on Facebook. And uh, uh, of course, very different growing on Facebook back then versus now. Why did you decide, since you were also a, a tech company, you wanted to be and you were the first digitally native, especially in the apparel space, why did you decide to move to New York when you already were at Stanford, you were in the Bay, you had the amazing resources kind of at your fingertips when it comes to on, on the technology side? I had a meeting with an uh, angel investor named Andy Ratcliffe, who since he and his wife have become um, close friends of our family. And I remember sitting with Andy at his office at Benchmark. He had left Benchmark, but still kept an office there and was giving him the pitch on Bonobos. And I was shocked when he said he wanted to invest. I was really taken aback because most of his investments had not been in consumer but he liked the pants. <laughs> he was a customer of the pants. And I think he liked the concept of going around the traditional distribution with this direct model. And I remember him saying, oh, I see in here you're moving to New York. How come? And I, I gave a list of reasons. I was like, well, the PR industry for fashion is in New York. There's a lot more retail talent there. There's, you know, it's the fashion center, fashion capital, certainly of the US up there with, you know, Paris and Milan in the world. Uh, designers, merchants, production people, all there. There's actually manufacturing in New York. We were manufacturing at the time in San Francisco in uh, what might have been the last cut and sew manufacturing facility in the entire Bay Area. They had like four people working there. And actually, New York City has a much bigger garment industry. So I went through all these reasons. I thought New York would be a place where brand and technology would collide more so than the Valley, which is more technology-led. And then Andy heard me going through this list of reasons. And finally said, well, where do you want to live? And I said, New York. And he goes, next time, just say that. <laughs> so, uh, and I said, what do you mean? He's like, the company should be based where the founders want to live. And I think there was, there was some truth to that too. I had spent a couple of years in the Bay Area, wanted to meet someone, you know, a life partner as well at some point and felt like New York would be a more, more fun place to be. It actually turned out that that list of reasons at least we can't run the Monte Carlo simulator and see what might have happened if we built the company in the Bay Area. There are some storied apparel companies in the Bay Area, like the the Gap family of brands, but it ended up it ended up being amazing building Bonobos in New York. And as we've seen, the direct consumer revolution that has you know emerged over the last 13 years since we started it, uh, most of which most of which has been centered in New York. With an honorable mention to LA, the Bay Area um, is less relevant. No, totally. And I mean, you were really there from the very beginning um, when you, with that rise of New York and all these amazing, amazing Disney brands uh, coming out of New York. What was that like being there, you know, in the early days of that movement in New York? It was bizarre because it wasn't clear that there was anything else happening in an entrepreneurial way. 
I remember hearing about companies like people were talking about this company guilt group and that was growing quickly. And I was like, whoa, this is an e-commerce company in apparel. They're selling remnant inventory. I remember hearing about that. There was some talk about Etsy at the time. And that was kind of an interesting, you know, marketplace coming up. And then I would meet people right when they were starting stuff. Like I, I remember meeting Jen Hyman and Jenny flies from rent the runway when they were straight out of HBS talking to them about what they were doing. I can remember the Warby Parker founders, like the first time, um, you know, pre-launch, they came through Bonobos and we sat down and we had a meeting with them just to talk about them. We're like, oh, they're going to do this in eyewear. That's interesting. Like the try-on hurdle is even higher there. And I remember being like, I wonder if that worked. And we were fortunate. We became angel investors in the company and got to see that. I remember there not being any seed investors at all. And so we raised actually our first 8 million of Bonobos across four rounds. Um, this is all before we did a series A from over 120 different angels because there wasn't a seed ecosystem. You know, we're talking pre-Lairer ventures, pre a lot of the people that you now think about in New York. Now I feel like it's easy for founders. I, I mean, I know it's hard, but it was bananas because there were just wasn't, there wasn't much. And the people that were building things didn't even know each other. It's just cool to think how much, how well New York's done uh, since then. Yeah, no, totally, totally. We've had a couple other uh, folks on the show that were also kind of in those early pinnings in New York, and it just seems like a wild, wild time. Um, and almost unexpected, it seems, like not obvious. Now, probably looking back, it's probably obvious, but um, it just seems so much excitement back in those late 2000s, early 2010s. Was it tough raising money for Bonobos? And like, how did you how'd you go about meeting, and I guess, maybe your strategy when it came to fundraising? It was intergalactically difficult. I mean, it was so hard. It wasn't like I couldn't get to the institutional VCs. I could because I had the network coming out of Stanford and we had angel investors who knew people and some of them had been venture investors and I pitched everyone and everyone said, no, like, Oh, for a hundred, no joke over three years. And as you know, as you build a company, you know, if it's a growth company and if it merits the investments, I think as Bonobos did, we did, I think the first three years were something like 2 million, 4 million, 8 million. So that's like a nice growth business with real revenue. Ultimately you need more revenue as you scale. And so, you know, the first round was 750 grand and then the second round was 3 million. And at that point, I thought we were ready to do a series A and we had to do two more rounds of 2 million each, literally one fifty to $1,000 check, $25,000 check, $100,000 check at a time. And when you think about like 7 million bucks is $700,000 checks, <laughs> You know, like when you think about those, what I would call like seed round two, three, and four, right? Or what people now would call like, okay, there's a friends and family, then there was a pre-seed. And then I think we, I would say we had like seed one and seed extension. That equivalent of the pre-seed, the seed one and the seed two was, you know, over seven, seven and a half million dollars. And the the median check size was probably 75,000. And so the way that we raised money was based on a principle that one of my friends, um, got from his grandmother, who I think got it from like Christian science, which is supply is infinite. So if you make the assumption that the supply of money, uh, the supply of risk capital for growth companies is infinite, which isn't true, but it kind of is, like there's a lot of money out there, then you reframe the challenge in your own mind from I can't raise money to I must not be working hard enough to find the people that will give, give me money. And what we discovered at Bonobos was we were 
more likely to get money from people who were customers of the brand uh, and who loved the brand more so than people that traditionally invested in, in tech. And so once we figured that out, we did weird stuff. Like I found a guy who'd ordered 26 pairs of pants from Malaysia and started emailing with him. And within six months, he had flown to New York and he wrote a million dollar check, which was our biggest check in the first four rounds, all because I was like, who's this guy from Kuala Lumpur who's ordered over 20 pairs of pants? And so we started doing stuff like that, which is really leaning into our most passionate customers and networking with them back group to find investors. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I'm also curious to hear when you thought that you had, you were at the stage, you were able to raise Series A, then you realized you weren't. What were the reasons why you weren't ready for a Series A? I think that there is a paradox of when you are building something where there isn't a precedent, there is a good thing about that, which is that if what you're doing is non-consensus or contrarian, by definition, if it works, it's going to create a lot of economic value. And yet there is a funny thing where frequently the consensus is what drives follow-on venture capital from the initial venture capitalists. I don't mean follow on from the same firm, but other venture investors seeing what other venture investors are doing, right? In other words, once Uber is out the gates, if you're Lyft or Halo Cab, which was a big company at the time, others that have come along, other markets, DD in China, once there's precedent, other venture investors are like, oh, okay, I see what's happening here. It's hard to be the first company. And so if you're the very first digital brand, People are like, what is this? This is a pants company. Why would I invest in a pants company? I wouldn't invest, you know, as a technology investor in a pants company. And so you have to create the right references. And for us, ultimately, what that meant was uh, telling a story around how we were basically a vertically integrated Zappos. We were building an e-commerce soft goods distribution engine, but rather than selling Nike, we were going to be selling our own brand. And ultimately, I think it's telling that the people who invested in our company were people that it had invested in you know, analogous, analogous enterprises. And the two co-leads on our series A were Excel and Lightspeed. And Excel had the precedent of having invested in the company uh, called ModCloth. And Lightspeed had the precedent of having invested in the company called ShoeDazzle. And even though those companies were different, ModCloth wasn't its own brand. ShoeDazzle was, was not selling um, vertically integrated product in quite the same way. In those companies, in some cases, the, the analogs were started after we were started. By the time we raised the A, we were able to point and say, hey, this model is working. Look look at where it's working elsewhere in your own portfolio. And I think once you create those references, it's easier. Uh, but it is hard to go first. What are maybe some things that you thought you knew or have an understanding of and maybe just didn't quite, quite know? I'd point to two things. One is we didn't know how to build the tech stack. And therefore, we, over time, iterated a lot on the core platform and I think built too large of an internal team over time. Um, now there's this little company called Shopify, right? And I I dream of you know building a direct consumer brand in the Shopify era by comparison to what we did because people that write e-commerce software are rarely um, are rarely going to be as good inside of a co- one company that's doing it versus building it for an enormous ecosystem where the, the whole ethos of the company is around. Um, e-commerce software development. So the tech stack was a real struggle. And at one point we opened an office in California to try to solve it by hiring talent from there. And it turns out that 
that's that was there are a lot more engineers there and it's very competitive um and that coming to a pants e-commerce company isn't isn't the highest um option on the list and then when we did recruit people which we were successful in doing mostly out of netflix it was very hard uh to run a two office thing and there's a separate conversation we could get into around how i did a poor job of of running running a business where we had people who were excited about different parts of the business i think tech was one challenge the second i think was around something funny which is not doing some things that we did later earlier uh primarily being comfortable that the future of digital brand building wasn't only digital it was digital led and omni and so we were five years in before we launched our guide shop model which is our fit to ship you know inventory light store model i think there's now over 60 and we were maybe five years in before we launched our partnership with Nordstrom, uh, who are people who can be trusted with a great customer service experience, which was always our fear about doing wholesale. I think if we had done guide shops, our store strategy, and Nordstrom earlier, we would have built up much. Um, we would have had a much more rapid path to profits. We would have raised less capital because the paradox of direct consumer is it's actually a really bad business model. Um, standalone in most categories because the costs of marketing and free shipping both ways and returns, all these things actually create a big um, cost structure that make your unit economics challenging. And I think that's something underappreciated about D2C is it's it's actually not that good of a business model in most categories. How do you, because I know obviously you invest in, in companies as well, especially you know today, how do you advise or think about when entrepreneurs ask you how to approach maybe omnichannel or going, you know, into retail versus setting up their own shop? I usually zig to everyone, Zach, and say, I would actually go offline earlier, even from the beginning, if I could. I mean, I was speaking to an entrepreneur just last week who's got a really interesting idea in apparel. And I said, you should actually find a wholesale partner from launch. And he was like, wait a second. I thought we were going to be talking about D2C. Like you're, you know, he was flattering about it. He's like, you're the godfather of D2C and you're saying go wholesale. And I was like, I know too much. Like in the apparel category, wholesale actually can be your most profitable business. As long as you pick an enduring retailer to work with that's well run, who cares about customers, which there aren't tons of, but they're out there. And I saw it when I was at Walmart after Bonobos was acquired, some of the you know, some of the best businesses were ones where there was a really big wholesale business, profitable, well-run, combined with a great direct-to-consumer business. And what happens is if you have a large wholesale business side-by-side, side, you don't have to spend the same kind of marketing dollars on your direct-to-consumer business because the wholesale distribution, which, by the way, is operating income positive, lower margin, gross margins, but higher operating income because uh, there's not a lot of fixed costs that you have to put against it, decreases your need to market. And so if I asked you, what would you rather do? Sell your product profitably in another channel to market it or spend money on this lifetime value to CAC fantasy? <laughs> um, you know, if you have the right partner, I think the former is a, a solid strategy. So I, I would do that earlier. And I think I also love this concept of like running your brand out of your own store out the gates. Like if you've got to pay for store, if you've got to pay for corporate real estate anyway, might as well just run the company out of your own store and get your own vertical store experience going. And, and I've done that with a couple of businesses I'm involved with. 
where we've actually launched the company in our headquarters combo store. And that's been fun because you get to see the customer and iterate and experiment with what might become your own four-wall retail model. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's always such a great experience, of course, you know, because the thing is too, is that I think when folks think about D2C, they, I think it's natural to only think about online, but there's also D2C in retail and that you actually have your own store as well. And that can be, I mean, as you just said, very, very powerful. How did you develop the concept for guide shops? Because that was, I mean, truly remarkable as well. It was one of these like beautiful, happy accidents things. We had built a couple of these fit pods that we thought we would take remotely and take them to a bar event and have people try on pants. And we had these things fabricated in New Jersey and they weighed hundreds of pounds. Like it, they were the least modular, hardest thing to transport ever. And so we just stuck them in our offices, like not far from the lobby. And then when we were running a test pilot to figure out the fit of our shirts, we were trying to figure out whether or not to go into a second category. And we saw similar challenges on the fit of a woven button down shirt. We invited a bunch of people, I think on Twitter, we called it the dress shirt alpha. They wanted to come in and try on our shirts. And guys started coming into our offices in New York and we had these fit pods that were designed to be mobile, but weren't very mobile. And next thing we knew, guys were trying on shirts. They're like, yeah, these shirts are okay. Here's some feedback, but can I try on some pants? And so we started like bringing our pants through. We had some inventory and and guys would be like, I want to buy them. And we're like, whoa, we don't have any here. Like, no, 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 but just ship them to me. Right. And so all of a sudden we built this little fit to ship lab in our headquarters and next thing we knew, we were doing a million revenue run rate out of our lobby. And it's like, wait a second, we can't ignore this. Like, we're excited about the direct consumer internet model, but you're doing a million of sales out of your lobby from guys coming and trying on pants. That became something that we just couldn't ignore. And that was when we realized, like, let's now test this out, you know, in standalone locations. And we did a test on Newberry Street in Boston, but we were scared of the cost of real estate. So we did it in the third story of a building and barely anyone wanted to do that. And then we finally said, all right, let's try a street level store. We got the confidence in. And I think we had one on Armitted Street in Lincoln Park and one in Katie's Alley in DC. And they started doing really well. And that was the beginning of realizing, okay, we, we don't need to be afraid of real estate. You need to you need to get the right real estate at the right price, ground level. And next thing we knew we were building building stores. It was a different kind of store, but they were stores for sure. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I, I guess also the insight there is people didn't mind you not actually having inventory in the store and actually didn't mind delay in terms of receiving the actual product itself, which I think is is amazing too. Totally counterintuitive in a way. Everyone talks in retail about instant gratification. Maybe there's something to that. I tend to think that's more true in categories like grocery and CPG where you might need the product right away. In apparel, it's not so obvious, particularly in men's apparel. You think about it, like how often do you buy something to wear at a store? You come home and rip off what you're wearing and put that on and need it right there. Typically, you don't wear it until the next day or beyond that. And then once you discover that, you're like, well, actually, our customers coming from work, going out to dinner, you know, coming from work during the day and doubling back, carrying around your own inventory isn't necessarily a better experience, you know, doing your own fulfillment. And so once we built a narrative that this is more convenient because we'll ship it to you. Uh, I think that made sense to a, a lot of people that at first it didn't make sense to you. And, and now, of course, click and collect and, you know, click to ship and all kinds of different options like this are everywhere. So what was the process like as well 
selling bonobos to Walmart. How did that come about? And why did you decide that Walmart was the right partner? So it was extraordinary. I mean, we were right about to do a different deal and it was going to be with a financial firm, not a strategic firm. And it was compelling. It was a compelling deal. It was going to enable us actually to keep control of the company. We had some investors who were going to come in and they were going to buy was like a 40% stake in the business and people who'd wanted liquidity were going to get it. Other people would roll. It was going to work for the team. And then I had a meeting with Mark Laurie, who'd been a mentor to me. Excel had backed his company then called Quidsy early days, diapers and soap.com. It was an example of a company in the New York ecosystem that was doing really well in e-commerce. I was tracking it closely. Mark had become the kind of a mentor where you see him once every see someone once every year, two years, and they just spend an hour and you get the best advice. And so I got back together with Mark after he'd sold his next company after Quincy, which was jet.com to Walmart. And I remember seeing that transaction thinking, whoa, that's a really courageous bet by Walmart. And I know that, that Mark wanted to go build the next Amazon. And so he must have seen something really compelling in joining forces, arguably Walmart scale and balance sheet. And we sat down and we just mind melted around the future of, of e-commerce and the component of the future that I was closest to, which was around the power of digital brands and how great retailers would need great proprietary brands to win. And we talked in that conversation about the future of commerce looking a little bit like a history of Netflix, which is you start by streaming other people's content. Let's set aside the DVD era, but you're streaming other people's content. And then at some point you wake up and you're like, actually, this becomes commoditized. It's a race to the bottom on margin. We need to have our own content. And you might remember that Netflix started building, you know, creating shows like Orange is the New Black and House of Cards. And there were a lot of people at the time who thought, who do they think they are, HBO? What do they think they're going to start to like make their own content? Um, and of course, now we know that they're pretty good at that, right? Including, I think, you know, Academy Awards and Emmys and all kinds of good stuff. And so my view at the time, which Mark and I discussed was, I think this is going to be the future of commerce for a lot of the big platforms is either the development of, of proprietary brands and digital brands. And, and that, in fact, became a really exciting way to think about the future of our company, you know, being a part of that and being inside of a really big and, you know, a big safe tent, which is the Walmart ecosystem. Uh, and, it, and then it was an, it was a magical experience on a lot of levels on that for reasons I didn't appreciate at the time, you know, the, the CEO there, Doug McMillan, and what he's done to transform that enterprise um, digitally, sustainability, uh, corporate social responsibility. It was it was a really really fun journey. No, that's that, that's amazing. I guess also stepping like one step back even before that, why did you, since you were receiving a couple offers, um, why personally were you? Did you think that that it was the time was right to actually? to actually have Bonobos get acquired, whether through a strategic or whether it's through, uh, through Walmart? So that was 2017. Um, I'd been in it for 10 years and I was getting married. And I remember sitting down with Mark in the CEO of Walmart, Doug. We sat down for dinner in New York. I was meeting Doug for the first time and he, he asked me the same question. He was like, why do you want to do this? And I remember thinking, I'm probably never going to have a chance to have this kind of a dinner again if this deal doesn't happen. So I'm just going to be as unvarnished and as honest as I can. Doug said, why do you want to do this? And I said, Doug, I've been at this for 10 years. I need a job. 
<laughs> you're like being an entrepreneur is not a job. Um, and it felt like I had some shareholders that were excited to get liquid. I was personally excited to de-risk. You know, you get older. I was 28 when we started Bonobos. I was 38. And it felt like talk up the win. I, I would have been okay doing the minority deal as well and kind of going for the IPO. But I just fell in love with Walmart. And my instinct was, let's do it. Like it's been a decade. And, you know, I was, in a, I was at Walmart for another three years. So like 13 years all in. It felt like the right moment. I can't describe it. There's an intuition to it. And now with COVID and everything that's happened, which we never could have foreseen, you know, I feel I feel fortunate that Bonobos belongs to probably one of the few places you can be in retail right now and be like on a winning, a winning team that's growing, share prices appreciating. So I feel like we got the right owner. I think if we've been standalone private equity with everything that went down the last year and a half, that I think that would have been tough. Of course, it's been a really tough, tough year. And of course, no one had the foresight of COVID or anything like that. But that's also good to know. You never know how these things are going to end up, but that but Walmart really was the right acquire for Bonobos. And that was, and to be under Walmart's wing. That's great. It's really great to know. I know right, right, right now you're working on something in stealth. Do you have any hints of or any tease in terms of what you're actually currently working on? I'll tell you this, it's around this idea of, of eliminating loneliness and helping people in a non-healthcare way improve their mental health. So it's got, it's got everything to do with mental wellness, but nothing to do with a mental wellness product. And so we'll be, we'll be in the app store in not that long with the password protected alpha. Um, it's named after an important part of a Thanksgiving meal. And I think if we do this the right way, a lot of people are going to love it. But let's get it live and make sure that a few people love it first. I'm excited. I'm really, really excited for it. And given also like the year that we've had, it, it couldn't be more make sense as well that that this is the absolute perfect time for it, it seems. Since, of course, with everything that, would, that we've been through during COVID. Um, what's one book that has inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I could answer this in a way where those are pretty similar answers, but let's split it up. I think that Moneyball by Michael Lewis is one of my favorite books professionally because it's about, so it's about baseball. It's about Billy Bean um, of the A's and someone coming in with a data-driven approach to a pretty intuition and scout-driven uh, industry and finding a way in a business that's built on a very unlevel playing field where the payrolls are, you know, I think whatever it is, Tampa Bay Rays ones for 25 million and the Yankees for 250. So if you think about having to compete in a sport like that, it actually is analogous in some ways to startups where you just don't have the resources and how do you, how do you win? And so I loved, I loved that book. First of all, because Michael Lewis is a great writer. And because the theme of it is um, you can unlock ways to win by being contrarian uh, and doing things that other people aren't doing and might criticize you for. And I think from this conversation, I think that's a, a theme we could draw from the startup journey, right? Which is um, being contrarian, whether VCs are willing to back you or not. So I love that book professionally. Personally, I love Atonement by Ian McEwen. It's a novel. I think it became a decent movie starring Karen Knightley, but I recommend the book over the movie. And I think what I love about it is when I think about what makes human beings fundamentally incredible, it's empathy, our ability to imagine the world from the perspective of another person, whether we choose to deploy that or not in this age of tribalism and division is 
is still our choice. The capability is there. I'm reminded of the love your enemy speech by Dr. King that I try to read whenever I'm feeling particularly angry on Twitter. And Atonement is a great book at just immersing yourself in empathy and uh, what it means to imagine the world from the perspective of of another person, which I think is the hardest thing to do, but uh, the capability that we are most uniquely suited to. No, I I really appreciate you sharing uh, both of those and, and really excited to add them to our uh, our book list. Um, my final question to you is, what's your one piece of advice for founders who are currently building a business? I think that it's okay to be vulnerable. And I think it's important to have a segmentation of who you're vulnerable with, right? And so I think vulnerability does draw your team in, but your team also wants to know that they're going to win. So there's only so much of your own uh, psychological journey that you want to tax them with. They've got uh, enough work to do. I think with a close member of your leadership team, there's, um, or a co-founder, you can be more transparent. But then I think it's really important to find someone, and there's a lot to be said for loved ones and friends and family. But where I'm going with this is it's really important to find someone in your orbit, whether it's a therapist or an executive coach, psychiatrist or some other form of spiritual advisor or healer, someone who you can be 100% unvarnished with about your insecurities and your fears, your anxieties, your, your jealousies, your rage, all these human emotions that tend to be bottled up because founders are meant to be these beacons of positive energy and contagious positive thoughts and find a way to process those other emotions. And, and so I, I think it's okay to ask for help. And in fact, I would actually say it's not okay. It's, it's important to seek it out and find the right person to have that experience with the same way that you approach going out and getting the right senior iOS engineer or the right CFO. You should be equally ambitious about getting the best uh, counselor, area, whatever you want to call it that you can. Totally. Because then that also means your overall performance and your overall health and wellness. I mean, that's also tied to it too. And then also just, you know, it's obviously important to make the right hire and to, and to get, you know, the best people on your team, but also to make sure that you're a hundred percent right. Right. Um, and doing the types of things that actually will help your, um, you, to make sure your mental health is in check. And to keep you, you know, on a great path. Andy, this has been so much fun. Thanks again for your time. Yeah, this is amazing. Really glad to be with you. I appreciate it. And there you have it. It was terrific chatting with Andy. You can follow him on Twitter at Dunn. Now let's hear from Rohan from Gorgeous. Rohan, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing very well, Mike. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. I would love to learn a bit more about your company, Gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Gorgeous is an e-commerce focused help desk. We are an omni-channel solution. We aggregate a bunch of different channels that brands utilize to communicate with their customers. Uh, Things like email, chat, phone, SMS, social media, um, any way really to get in touch with potential customers or customers that are looking to buy from your brand. What we do at Gorgeous is we build in a lot of automation and machine learning into the back end of the product. A lot of times what customers are asking to brands is, where's my order? What's my shipping status? Things that are very common and very repetitive. Uh, And what we do at Gorgeous is we help brands automate certain things so that 
they don't have to spend a lot of time focusing on those common and repetitive requests, but that they can actually spend a lot of time focusing on things that are much more complex in order to drive revenue uh, out of the CX function. So what we do is we actually integrate with uh, three platforms, Shopify, Magento2, and BigCommerce. And what we can do with those platforms is we can actually bring in variables um, from each of the three, things like order number, name, shipping information, tracking information, things that are easily accessible without ever having to leave the gorgeous platform. And that makes things so much easier for the agents on the brand side of things to get back in touch with customers and make sure that they're helping them in the most efficient way possible. And I always like to talk about uh, social media as well. We have ad comments from Facebook and Instagram. We have Messenger. And we also have Instagram DMs, which is one of our most widely requested features uh, all across our customer base that we can actually bring into the gorgeous platform and help brands communicate with customers and prospective customers, uh, you know, perhaps before they ever hit their website. And so we're very e-commerce focused. We have about 7,000 brands all across the spectrum from early stage east, uh, from early stage e-commerce to much later stage mature companies as well. And we're also very international. That's awesome. So you're able to, with Gorgeous, to uh, brands can consolidate all requests that they get from customers, all the customers' tickets, asking where their orders are in one location. Sounds like it's going to save a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like gone are the days where brands are just using email to communicate with with their customers, right? They're using email, they're using social media, SMS is something that brands are really utilizing, especially over the last year or so. There's so many different ways to get in front of customers. CX is much more of a proactive activity now than it ever has been, as opposed to just purely reactive. And at Gorgeous, we help brands make things more efficient from from an aggregation and automation perspective. So you have over 7,000 customers, which is amazing, 7,000 brands. From your perspective, when does it make sense for a brand to be thinking about partnering with Gorgeous or be using Gorgeous? It's a good question. Really, our baseline set of requirements is that, you know, they sit on Shopify or, or BigCommerce or Magento too. And that with the integrations that we have with those three platforms, that immediately makes any brand that's uh, looking to consolidate tickets uh, a qualified customer for us, right? And so we have customers that are doing, you know, say 300 to 350 tickets a month, and maybe they're just using a couple different channels like just email and, and phone, for example. And then we have much more mature brands on the enterprise level that are accepting tens of thousands of tickets uh, and have multiple, multiple agents on the brand side working to get back to customers. And one of the things that we do differently at Gorgeous is we actually don't price based on the number of heads that you have using Gorgeous on the brand side. So we're not going to charge you for each additional user that you have on the platform. We're actually just going to charge based on ticket volume. And, and that's how we determine where on the spectrum you are. And for that reason, it generally, in combination with all the automation we build in, it tends to be very cost effective for brands. And not only are they saving potentially on that side of things, but they're also able to generate sales through the automation and machine learning that we have built in. And it gives a bunch of people access to the platform. So if someone on the engineering team wants to hop in or the CEO wants to hop in, they can do so. And it's not going to cost the brand anymore. That's awesome. That's awesome. As we're approaching the holidays here, what are three tips for managing the customer experience that you have for the brand? Since obviously in retail, the holiday period is the busiest time. Number one um, is personalize all your interactions with customers. The worst thing that you can do as a brand is make your customers feel like they're just a number, not an actual person. And in the event where you're not getting back to customers in a sufficient amount of time, or you're not getting them the right answer, or you're not addressing them by name, 
it's very likely that a combination of these things or even one of these things is going to convince that customer to go to a different brand. I mean, there's so much competition out there nowadays that consumers are willing to pay a couple extra bucks just for that more personal interaction with the brand. And so make sure you're personalizing that interaction with your customers and making them feel like you want to have a relationship with them long term. Number two is automate frequently asked questions. Uh, I talked a little bit about this earlier, but one of the most common requests we see, uh, especially in the DTC environment with brands is, you know, where's my order? What's my shipping status? When is it going to get here? Questions that you and I have both asked in the past as well. And we're finding that agents are spending way too much time manually responding to these kinds of requests. And it's not allowing them to focus on really getting in front of prospective new customers um, via a number of other different channels. And so what we can do with the integrations is we can bring in the variables like name, order information, tracking information. Um, and we could set rules in the background to automatically respond to customers if they were to, for example, ask about shipping or, or status of their order. And that's just one example. But there are a number of other ways that, that brands can use automation. The important thing there, obviously, is to not overuse automation. There, There's only so much that you can do with, with that piece of the equation. And if you do overuse it, then that takes away from point number one, which is personalization. And number three, find opportunities to drive revenue through, through customer support. Customer support, as I mentioned earlier, is no longer just a, a reactive piece of the organization. It's much more proactive nowadays. So institute live chat campaigns. Hop on on a page in front of a customer, uh, basically inducing them to make a purchase by telling them something that they want to hear or helping them out in, in making a decision in terms of product in your website. Utilize social media. If somebody comes in and comments on one of your ads and says they love this product that you posted, respond to them directly in line from within Gorgeous and provide them with a discount code to induce them to come to your website. Institute SMS campaigns. SMS is, is being widely adopted across the industry now, especially over the last year or so. And if you have a new product launch, announce it via SMS. People are on their phones all the time. And chances are they're at least going to click through that link to get to your website and take a look at what you have to offer, especially if they've been customers of yours in the past. And, and if they haven't, then it's a chance to, to gain new customers. So be proactive, not reactive is point number three. And you know, if you combine those three things, I think you're going to have a successful BFCM. No, I love that. I love that. So in just to recap, number one, personalize all interaction with customers. We, we talk a lot about on the show about the trend of uh, personalizing products. Well, also personalize those interactions with customers as well when they do have maybe uh, some pain points. If it goes so far. And your second point, automate frequency or, or have an FAQ sheet, um, absolutely makes total sense. And the third point I love, which is turning your customer experience or your customer service center from a cost center into a revenue driver. And I think that is pretty amazing um, idea and also really cool because then you get, then you can also influence a repeat rate. And at the same time, if you don't have a great customer service center, if that's not fully baked out and you maybe aren't personalized, with customers, then they might churn and you might lose them to a competitor. So that's awesome, Rohan. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 